Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Um, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and uh, good evening to those who are listening. It's a great pleasure to be able to answer your questions and to share with you the Word of God. I'd like to reiterate, it is a pleasure to have you listening to this program, and not just listening, but also interacting. Pastor Murphy, the first question, and this is a carryover from last week, how do you deal with anger and get rid of it? This is my weak point. How can I overcome this? Well, first thing I'd like to say to the person who sent in the question is that um, anger is a very real problem, and we seem to be living in a very angry world but also that carries over into the church. Um, I want to give you the results of a research that was done in um, England. It was called Boiling Point, and it was done in 2008 by the Mental Health Organization in the UK, and this is what they found out in relation to anger. 32% uh, of those interviewed said that they knew someone who had difficulty controlling their anger. 12% said that they themselves had trouble controlling their anger. So when you add that together, you've got 42% who said we have a real serious anger problem. 20% said they ended relationships because of anger. Wow. 64% believe that people are generally becoming more angry. 13% uh, had trouble controlling their anger but didn't see any need to seek help. And then 58% didn't know where to seek help to deal with anger. So it's very clear from this uh, survey that we've got two two, uh, conclusions. Anger is a very common problem, and really a lot of people don't know uh, how to deal with anger and uh, what is the position uh, of handling anger. So I want to share with you this evening uh, some thoughts around anger, and I want to look at anger in more detail. Then I'll come to the answer to the question. But I think we can do a what you might call a biblical theology of anger, um, look at it from the biblical point of view. The first thing that I would make, Bible makes very clear is that all anger is not wrong. So uh, there, it, there is a kind of anger that is appropriate, uh, that is right. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say to anybody, if you can't get angry, say something wrong with your moral um, uh, thermometer because there are things that we ought to get angry about. Um, but look at some... Uh, well, let me point out to you that um, God himself gets angry, and that should be an indication to us that anger cannot be of itself uh, a sinful emotion. In Psalm seven eleven, Nathan, could you read that? 
Psalm 711 says, God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. So it's very clear that God has anger towards people who are wicked and evil. Uh, Fifty times in the book of Romans, Paul makes a reference to God's wrath and God's anger. Fifty times in the book of Romans. Romans only has 16 chapters. And then if you look at Mark 3, 5, you'll see that Jesus himself, who was God incarnated, uh, was angry. And when he looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. If you know the background to that story, basically, is our Lord healing a man on the Sabbath day. And the legalists felt it was more important to stick in line with the Sabbath than to heal a man. And our Lord is so angry that they've made the Sabbath more important than a human being who, who needs help. Uh, so clearly you've got God being could be angry. You've got Christ himself who is the, the embodiment of love, yet he can feel anger against uh, injustice and feel anger against that which is wrong. And then if you look at Ephesians 4.26, believers can get angry and still not sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry, and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. So clearly, uh, it is indicated there that there's nothing wrong in a believer expressing anger, but that anger could become sinful, but there's a limit to it. So anger is appropriate, it's right, it's legitimate uh, in certain circumstances. And so that's the first thing we need to understand with anger. So because you get angry, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, every time you get angry, it's wrong. So we have to establish where do you decide which is good anger and which is bad anger. The second thing I'd like to say about anger is that anger is something that we do. It doesn't happen to us. It is something that we do. Uh, in fact, every part of us, our personality, uh, is related to anger. For example, when we get angry, the body uh, itself is affected. Uh, the nose flares, the breathing becomes very deep and loud and irregular, the blood vessels dilate, the muscles tighten, and of course the hormone level um, um, big floods, and so that we begin to act out. And so the body is affected. Um, also our emotions are affected. That's why we get upset, we get grumpy. Um, we display this either by coldness or by vengefulness. But that is the emotional part of it. And then our thoughts are involved in our anger as well because we think about uh, what we will do, how we will respond, how to deal with the person. So generally speaking, anger normally flows from the frustration of our thoughts about a situation. So not only the body and the emotion, the thought, but also our behavior. This is where our words are not sufficient. And it turns into action where we can hurt people with our actions or we can be violent or we can target um the person as an object. And so I, I just want to say that when you look at anger, it is something that involves the entire human personality. It's not just something emotional. Uh, it's something that involves our thoughts as well. It's not just something that is involves our thoughts. It also involves our volition, where we deliberately act out in our behavior. The third thing that uh, I think is important is to understand that anger is a natural endowment. And what I mean by that is that we're created in God's image. God has the capacity for anger. 
So it's only logical that when God created us in His image, that we would also share in that capacity, that emotion. So uh, we have the capacity to be angry, especially when it comes to something that's wrong or injustice. And the other thing I would say is that that particular uh, endowment uh, became corrupted when man fell into sin. And we know that very clearly because remember that um, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. There are only four people on planet Earth, but yet one boy kills the other. And the Bible says uh, Cain was angry with Abel. And that's because um, the Lord had accepted the offering of Abel, but he rejected the offering of uh of, of Cain, and he took it out on his brother. And that shows you the idea that sin had just entered. It didn't take long before sin had so corrupted that, that particular gift, that emotion, that he, he lacks control. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's the second sin in the Bible is murder. Think mm-hmm. about that for just a moment. Uh, but that gives you an idea that this particular gift that God has given to us, the gift of emotion and the gift of anger, uh, can be abused and misused because of our sinful nature. The third thing that I think is important is that anger is something that can be learned. And in most cases, it is learned in the home, and we carry that over into our marriages. Generally speaking, we deal with situations and problems like our parents dealt with them. So if you were brought up in a home where you went in a Christian home, and uh, the way that your mom or your dad dealt with issues is that they were either angry at each other, quarreling with each other, fighting with each other, uh, and you see that again and again and again. Now, I know when you're growing up, you say that will never happen. In your mind, you said, nah, I'll never deal with the problem. The problem with that is that it becomes so ingrained in your, your, your psyche that to your utter surprise, when you get married, because you've never learned of a way to handle management, uh, manage your conflict. You never learned of a, a way of dealing with problems. The only way that you know to deal with the problems is what you saw mentored before you, in a bad sense. And therefore, you react the same, you act the same way your parents did, so it's normally learned behavior. But I think Proverbs 24, 22, um, 24, could you read that, please? Proverbs 22, verse 24 says... Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Yeah, because if you read the, the, the context, you become like the, the person that, um, that is angry. So clearly it's a learned behavior. If you're moving with people who are angry, uh, and uh, like these young fellows who get into drug wars, and there's anger there, they learn that. And uh, it becomes so. It's something that you you learn. It, 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 you you do have born with that emotion, but again, how that emotion is is used and how it's channeled, how it's shaped, is dependent on the persons that you're involved in, and especially so you see somebody who is you're with somebody associated with somebody who's constantly angry. That carries over, and the Bible warns you about that because you have a good example, a bad example, and of course we all know that uh, good examples have an effect, but also uh, in a very more profound way, bad examples uh, produce bad results. So if it's learned, if anger is a learned habit, does that give hope that anger can be de-learned? Well, that's the point. That's the point. It, it is something that we uh, we. It's just like. That's a good point. For example, that's the danger of telling people that were born a homosexual or born a lesbian. You give them no hope. Hmm. And there's no gospel message that could give them hope if you're saying they were born that way. 
if you offer them that they can be rescued from that, that is something you learned very, very early in age and probably got involved with some person in the family, whatever it is. You give them hope that this is not, I'm not condemned to remain in this condition. Uh, any sinful action that we have, it is something generally speaking we learn. I can't lie in. It's something we learn to do. We, we learn that by lying, we get over a situation. Stealing uh, from very young. I mean, I can remember when I was in primary school, uh, I can remember stealing from the headmistress. I can remember uh, it was uh, seriously. I mean, and we would uh, we would distract her. Uh, and one of my brothers uh, never got over that, and he continued it afterwards. Mm-hmm. I, I was able to break that system, but that is something that uh, you. Every I can't think of a sin that you don't learn and you don't get into some kind of practice by it. So it's a learned behavior. Confession is good for the soul. Anything else? (laughs) (laughs) So it's good to tell people this because some people think that when a pastor or somebody that we're angels, I was never an angel. Hmm. I was a good boy and people thought it was an angel. But my mind was a cesspool. And uh, uh, I don't want to go go into that line, but quite frankly, I'm glad God saved me because if he hadn't saved me, I would probably have been a demon so Amen. I'm glad that they say me. The other thing I would say, Nathan, is that anger is a moral matter. And what I mean by that is that we weigh something and we evaluate the person that we direct our anger to. So it is, it's a conscious thing that we do, and that's a moral element of it. The other thing is that if it was not a moral element, uh, God himself judges us and evaluates our, our anger when it is wrong, it's wrath, whatever it is. So there has to be a moral element to it. So just brushing aside anger uh, is, is inadequate for a believer because it's a moral issue. Now, how do you then differentiate between godly anger or normal natural anger and sinful anger? And I want to make uh, some suggestions here. And I think you can ask uh, six diagnostic questions. Number one, are we angry about the right thing? That is one of the big issues. Uh, is it a good reason for anger? Is it because we have personal expectations that somebody's not meeting but it's not realistic? Uh, is it because we have a false misconception and we don't really understand the scenario and we get angry because we don't know the details? Is it because we have some distorted belief that is a wrong belief, but we've entertained this belief for so long, and we just think that uh, everybody should go along with my belief system. That is another matter. And then, <clears throat> is it a selfish desire? Yeah. So, it's okay to be angry about the <coughs> correct thing, but yet the Bible says to be long-suffering. <coughs> Are those contradictory? Or No, there's not, there's not contradictory, because long-suffering is another emotion you have. Okay. So you've got the, the, the you've got, you can be angry. Like God has, God can be angry and God can be long-suffering. There's no contradiction between the two. Okay. Uh, but again, in dealing with anger, you will see that that's where long-suffering has to come in as part of the process to deal with it. But the, the, these are two things that are not uh, contradictory at all. The other thing is, uh, other question you could ask is, are we expressing our anger in the right way? Uh, not only is it, about the right thing we're dealing with, but are we doing it in the right way? Uh, it's possible to be to get angry about the right thing, but express it in the wrong way. So that in itself is something that we need. Is it uh, anger that is constructive? Is it anger that is controlled? Or is it anger that is punitive and spiteful? Uh, that will help you differentiate between uh, the two. Um, uh, number three, are you holding on to anger? Uh, how long does it last? 
uh, if you hold on to anger too long, it morphs into something that is extremely sinful. Uh, and uh, that's why the Bible tells you, look at Ephesians 4, 26. Ephesians 4, 26 reads as follows. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. point is there, you don't hold it. You're not, you try to keep it current. You don't want it to roll in from one day to another. And the reason why, uh, when we talk about how you deal with it, there has to be a, a ventilation or pressure tube or valve that releases the the uh, the issue because what happened if you're not dealing with it you carry it over and carry it over meanwhile you have added different layers of problems until finally it is so much issues you're dealing with that like a volcano depression just explodes you have to have means of ventilating that so one of the ways of dealing with uh, anger is to come up with some way of how do I ventilate this before it piles up upon me and the pressure becomes so great number four uh, do we lose it when we are angry. In other words, do we go ballistic? Do we explode? And um, the intensity of our anger uh, greatly diminishes if it is controlled. And godly anger is something that must be controlled. So we must try to avoid being uh, being uh, explosive. Look at Proverbs twenty nine eleven. If you wanted to follow along, that reference again is Proverbs 29 and verse 11. A fool uttereth all his mind... But a wise man keepeth it till afterwards. Yeah, that's what happens when we get angry. We just, just yeah. spittle everything, but a wise man learns to control. So it's a matter of, of control here. This is an important, vital matter, rather than going ballistic. And then, of course, on Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, you don't turn there. But one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is called self-control. So when we lose control, clearly we're not living under the power of the Spirit. So that is another important to help you to decipher. I like what Dr. J. Adams said on this subject. Let me just read what he said. He said, anger is the emotion that has been given by God to attack problems. The energies of anger must be productively released under control towards a problem. It must be directed towards destroying the problem, not towards destroying the person. Mm. See, uh, Anger is like a horse. It must be bridled. But I think that's a very good thing, that when we get angry, it's, it's the problem that we should focus on, not on the person. And very often, we focus on the person who creates the problem, rather than say, listen, uh, honey, we're fighting about this thing. I, um, let's tackle the issue. Let's not go down the line of trying to cut each other up. Let's, let's see what the real issue is, what the problem is. Often, the person begins to attack the person. You know, you, you never have time um, to sit down and discuss anything. Uh, you're so negligent, whatever it is. Now, the moment you do that, the person becomes defensive. Right. Rather than say, look, we have a problem. I don't want to seem as though I'm attacking you, but here is the problem. Let's, let's focus on this problem. Let's see how we can solve this problem together. So it's important uh, control. And then number five, what motivates your anger? Uh, what is it that you really want? Do you want your way? Are you looking at the well-being of the relationship or the other person? Are you concerned about losing your testimony? Are you concerned about glorifying God? What's your motive in this? You know, Do you just want to hit back and hit hard because you're hurting and you're taking vengeance? The other one is, uh, what effect does anger have? Uh, sinful anger creates more problems and it uh, complicates matters and it hurts other people and puts other people on the defense. 
Godly anger is never about winning. It's always about achieving some godly change and to improve interpersonal relationships. So the goal is not to win the battle. It's how do we improve our relationship and solve this problem. Uh, it's about healing the breach and not widening the divide. It, it, it seeks to heal rather than hurt, to solve rather than separate. And look what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 20. James chapter 1 and verse number 20. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Again, that's a clear warning. That losing it, becoming ballistic, exploding in wrath, you don't accomplish righteousness. It just doesn't. So that is a matter. And then the last one is, uh, do you keep dredging up the past again and again and again, or do you deal with the issue and move on? Uh, and I would suggest you that give the grace of forgiveness. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 23 is an interesting passage. Matthew 18? Yeah, 18, verse 21 to 23. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times, Jesus saith unto him, I say unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which... That, that's good right there. The, the point that I wanted to make, Nathan, is that um, the per- person gets angry because they, but they keep doing it again and again and again. But that is human sinful nature. So what you've got to do is you've got to have the offer the, the grace of forgiveness. That's what the Lord is saying. Here's a guy, uh, Peter saying, but he come to me seven times and he asked for forgiveness. I'm done with that. Can't ask him. The Lord says 70 times seven because if God ever treated us that way, we're in serious trouble. Because daily, weekly, monthly, we got to go to God, and sometimes it's for the same thing. Sometimes it's for the same hourly. Thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the, that's the point. You've got to give them the grace of forgiveness, <clears throat> etc. Now, how do you deal with anger? <clears throat> I want to offer you some biblical counsel, and then I want to give you some practical suggestions. <clears throat> First of all, um, look at James one nineteen. James chapter 1 and verse number 19 Get my bearing here. James one nineteen says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So the first thing I would say to you is that try to avoid being a quick-tempered person, okay? And along with that, Nathan, look at Proverbs 16.32. Proverbs 16.32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Again, it's, it's emphasizing the idea of control. Control, being calm, being cool. So the Bible would say to you here in this particular case, put off quick-temperedness and put on slowness of anger. Uh, that's what the Bible, and that's something you have to do. It's not something God's going to do. That's what the Bible don't putting off and putting on. So every time you explode, your response should be to the person that you did, you know, this is wrong. I'm sorry about it. Uh, I, I need, and, and then you respond in a calm way. But if you don't deal with it, you got to, and it's only as you take off one and put on the other, 
uh, anticipating yourself in that, you gain victory over the matter. Put off or putting on will take about six weeks. You, as I keep telling people, anything you're going to do new or any habit you're going to break, it requires at least six weeks of consistent dealing with the problem. You can't deal with it for two weeks and then go back to the old way again. It needs at least six weeks so your brain can be rewired in a certain direction. So that's your first thing. Avoid being quick-tempered. The second thing I would say from a biblical point of view is deal with the issue and avoid carrying it over <clears throat> into the next day. And that's giving you Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 that we read already. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. So clearly keep things current, okay? Number three, I would say choose your battles. And what I mean by that, there are some things that um, are not worth fighting over. I mean, why fight over the toothpaste? I mean, there are many much bigger things to fight over. So he squeezes it at the top, and you squeeze it at the bottom, and you make a big issue about that. Uh, I remember I was dealing with a, a couple <coughs> in uh, St. Lucia, and the wife couldn't understand that when the husband takes a glass into the, f- the front room, the living room, and, and, and just drank it, uh, what, and then left it there for her to pick up. To her... That didn't make any sense. And you'd be surprised that that affected even their lovemaking in, in, in the marriage. Uh, eventually, marriage broke up because she's not giving in on these type of things, quite frankly. She's just insisting that. Uh, and then for him to move the vase, the vase had to be in the same place she put it. He couldn't move the vase to the side and leave it. She got angry. A person like that really is, is creating battles that uh, just exacerbate the problem. So I think choose then... Purposefully and willfully, deliberately work to put away anger. Look at Psalms 37, verse 8. Psalm 37 and verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Now, that's something you have to do. <laughs> yeah. Everybody is waiting for God to do something, some magic wand we can have that just said the solution. It takes discipline, godly discipline, to change those kind of attitudes. And that goes along with Ephesians 4, look at 31 and 32. Ephesians 4, 31 and verse 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. The first verse tells you what you've got to put off. The second verse tells you what you've got to put on. You can't put on unless you put off. Yeah. So you've got to understand this is what God wants for you. You work on these things. It's not, there's no magic to a lot of these problems. <clears throat> the, the other thing, Nathan, is that where we do have anger and uh, we don't seem to be able to deal with it, we need to surrender it to God. Look at uh, Romans chapter 12, in particular verse 19. We'll read from 12 to 21. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Yeah. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, 
Thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The important thing there is that leave vengeance to God. In other words, surrender it to him. God, this is something that is creating all kinds of issues. I can't seem to to solve it. Um, I can't go down this line again and again and again. There are some things you just have to surrender to God and say, God, handle this for me. I can't handle it. Sometimes it comes to that point where you've got to do it. <clears throat> no, that brings me to the some practical suggestions. The first thing I would say is that because of the nature of anger, and uh, if this is something that's ongoing, you need to have a regular means of ventilating. You need a ventilation system uh, where that pressure that builds up uh, can be resolved. And this is where I would suggest to couples to have a couch time. In other words... Don't let this thing go on. Uh, decide that we're going to have maybe every Wednesday, every once a week, twice a week, whatever it is. But we, this is saying we're going to discuss issues. We're not going to let these things pile up. That is a ventilation issue. You know, even if you've got a machine, by the way, you always got a pressure valve. That The pressure builds up so much, you need a pressure valve. When it, now, the valve itself is automatic. Sometimes it just goes off. If you've got a compressor, you know that. But again, with us now, we don't have a natural... That natural thing is is if you're a couple, that you meet together and you're able to share what your concern is on a regular basis. You don't wait till a month goes by, two months, three... So you're going to have to decide to set up a system where you can uh, ease this anger by a regular means of ventilating your concern. So you're going to have to decide with each other. We need some time together once a week unless deal with issues before these things pile up. By the way, that will take discipline as well because you've been following the same old pattern. It's not going to change over. It's going to take six weeks of doing this consistently before it becomes a habit. And the problem with people is they don't seem to have any kind of discipline. They want Everything is instant, 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 instant. They don't want what the Bible calls about godly discipline, but that is needed. Okay. Second thing is... Uh, when you find that you are beginning to get really angry and about to become ballistic, call for timeout. Just say to the, your, your partner, listen, I'm losing it. I might say something that I don't want to say. I just need a break. And walk away, do whatever you need to do, but cool down. And there's nothing wrong. But I would suggest to you that if you ask for a, um, a, to, a to, to, uh, tune out, uh, you should give an indication when you will come back to it. Yeah. The person who asked you for the timeout should be the one said that give an indication when we will deal with it. Okay, you just can't say I time out and that's the end of it. You need to get back to it. So let them give you a little time frame. Well, look, this is this is getting me so upset, so angry. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Uh, I need a day. I need I need an hour or two, whatever it is. Let's do it, do it tomorrow when I'm more calm, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you're gonna have to put that in place. And Number three, you must have a process of problem-solving or conflict resolution. If you don't have that in, in your family, within your home, you're always going to have this problem with anger. So there must be a way that you guys have worked out. And by the way, this is where premarital counseling comes in, where every premarital counselor should give a couple a, a system, a plan of how to deal with problems, and that they can. And then in the in the actual counseling. Uh, let them use that in a problem they had during the week and tell, told you how they use it, uh, what came up this week that was a problem, and, and how did you address the problem using this particular methodology, etc. 
so I do think you need some kind of conflict resolution uh, solution problem that um, that that should be given to you that you've learned that you, a procedure you follow in dealing with issues. And then I would say uh, perf- purposely determine that whenever you are getting angry or you've got an issue, don't ever deal with it when you're tired and exhausted. The moment you're tired and exhausted, it is a, one of the worst times to try to deal with the problem. So if you know you come home from work, you're tired, you had a bad day with the boss, you're exhausted from all, the, this is not the time to deal with these kind of problems because uh, it's really going to uh, pull out the worst in you. And then uh, I would suggest another thing that this might seem rather s- silly, but you can create some kind of a attention box. The husband is not listening to you, but you've got a little box there that you put your little things in, you know, that he knows that this is something you're concerned about. So if he's not listening, uh, agree that we will have this thing. He will look into it like once a week or every whatever it is and see exactly. You might be able to express it more in words on paper, coolly, than in words verbally before him because you're not seeing him before you when you're talking he's neglected so much you may be able to sit down during the day and write a nice little thing about what you're concerned about and it takes a lot of the emotion out put it in there he reads it it's a lot different than reading when you're calm and cool and collected you can put your thoughts right down than when you explode when he's come I think those are five very simple things that I think are very very practical that um, I would recommend that you try that out but again you need your partner's cooperation uh, so I need to sit down with him and, and, and uh, come up with this kind of thing to try to help you out of this dilemma that you're in. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We are broadcasting from Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. You can also join us during this program on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed. And while you're listening to the program and watching behind the scenes, you can also comment on your device and get the exact or send your question in via the comment section. If you've just tuned in and you're saying, what was the question? What was the topic? Pastor just gave a 30 minute, very practical synopsis of anger. And if you didn't get all of that, you can go back and listen to it later this week. We will post it online as a podcast, and you will be looking for episode number 240. You say, how do I get to the podcast? I'm glad you asked. Go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo you see. It's a great big broadcast microphone. You can't miss it. Right in the middle of the screen, there is a circle that says podcast. Click on that. And then there's several podcasts that are listed that we produce here at the Radio Lighthouse. Click on the That's Truth podcast, and the latest episode will be there, 240. If you are listening to this a year from now and you want to find episode 240, you can click on the link for the archive and go and look for episode 240. And we will try and also name this episode relating to anger. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in this very heartfelt question uh, about anger and admitting that it's your weak point. And I hope and pray that 
Some of the material that Pastor shared, or all of it, will be beneficial to you. Pastor, that same concept that you share, now you kept referencing husband-wife relationship, but that same thing would relate if it's a child-parent relationship? Yeah, it, it carries across, and even even within the workplace, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of things that can frustrate yeah. you in anger. So they're just basic, broad principles, and then there's the very simple, practical things we can do. Um, but there are solutions and biblical solutions and practical things we can do to see this problem. Another question that has come in. Can the kingdom of God be figurative or literal? See this scripture verse. Thank you for your answer. And the verse that was sent in was Luke chapter 9, verse 27. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Again, the question, can the kingdom of God be figurative or literal? Well, I wouldn't say it can be figurative or literal. I would say it can be literal or spiritual. And what I mean by that, Nathan, is that um, the, the Bible tells us, for example, look at Luke um, seventeen twenty one. Luke 17, verse 21 says, Neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Yeah. So clearly, this, the kingdom is spiritual. It's not just an, the the kingdom of God is going to be one day established. We'll be talking about that. It's a literal kingdom that's going to be established. But in this interim period, which is called the church age, it's within the believer. It's within the. It's, in other, it's, it's it's within the the church. Uh, those, those who belong to the church, they're part of the kingdom of God. So it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not, it's not a, you know, there, there's a, a movement in the states that is talking about kingdom building, where the Christians are going to take over government and take over business and so on. It's, it's folly, total, total folly, right? Um, but there are people who are very serious about that. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a big movement. But again, that will never happen. The kingdom of this world would only become the kingdom of our Lord when our Lord returns, smashes the Gentile power, and we claim the king. So there's going to be a little kingdom. But there is a kingdom within us, and that's the spiritual kingdom. And I, uh, Now, when I use the word figurative, um, I've got to be very careful, because there in Mark chapter, the passage was what, Mark? Uh, it's Luke 9.27. L- Luke 9.27. If you were to read the next verses, the, the what comes after, you'll see that immediately after that, the people are taken on the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, it is there that Christ um, became like uh, brightness. He became as as light, light. Uh, And and, uh, in other words, he's manifested in his glorified form before them. He goes through a metamorphosis uh, uh, where he's... um, In other words, if you read the book of Revelation, you see him in his glorified form, book of Revelation chapter 1. Here, he's manifesting what the kingdom is going to be like. So those that... He said that some sitting there and there would not die until they see the kingdom. Uh, and that's where they saw that aspect of the kingdom, that the kingdom is about the glorified Christ. He, he, he's going to rule. So this is a, just a, um, if you want to use the word figurative there in that case, but it's just a manifestation, uh, a, a small magnification of what the kingdom is involved uh, there that he manifests his, his glory. It's interesting as well, if you look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, Peter refers to this same event. In Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen to eighteen, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables 
when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There it is. See that? He's going to tell you now he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where he saw the power and the glory of Christ manifested to them. They said, this is not something of fiction I have told you. I saw this. Where did I see it? Go on and read it. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In that same passage, you read it, when he said, you know, well, Moses and uh, Elijah appeared, and the disciples said, you know, it's, it's good for us to be here, let's build a tabernacle. And the voice of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Peter is saying, I saw his glory, I saw his power. I got a sample. So when I'm telling you that the kingdom is coming with a glorious kingdom, I'm not telling you something that is a fable. I was there. I witnessed it. That's what he's talking about there in that passage, that some who would be living would see the kingdom, see, etc. Now, the other thing I want to say, Nathan, is that there's going to be a literal kingdom. That's why I've said it is a spiritual kingdom, but it's also a literal kingdom. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his king, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Again, that's a clear promise. By the way, who's making that promise? The angel Gabriel is saying, one day he will sit on the throne of Israel, the children of Jacob, and he will, that reign will, will be forever. A thousand years and then will go into eternity. But again, there's going to be a little kingdom. If you look also at Acts chapter 1, verse 3, and then verse 6 to 7. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of Interesting. God. Interesting. In that 40 year, 40 day period, our Lord is d- discussing with the disciples about the kingdom of God. Now go down to verse um, 6 and 7. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Again, they've been discussing the kingdom. And notice the question, when are you going to set up the kingdom of Israel? Because he's going to sit on the throne of David. Uh, and, and, and therefore, it's very, very clear. And the Lord said, you don't, the time that's going to happen is not your business. That's within God's will. But notice they're discussing the kingdom of Israel. And this, uh, Gabriel said he will sit on the throne of, of, of Israel. Then look at Acts chapter 15, verse 13 to 30, 13 and 16. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to do this, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Again, notice that the Gentiles, the church, is going to be called out first. After that is done, then he returns, and he does what? Set up the kingdom, see? The kingdom is coming, 
uh, and there's going to be uh, a thousand-year rule of Christ. The other thing is look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and verse 6. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Promise again that there's going to be a thousand year rule. And then you look at, you read verse 6 too? Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Again, a thousand year rule has come. It's called the millennial kingdom. That is going to be a literal kingdom where Christ rules from Jerusalem on the throne of David. That Look, God doesn't promise something that God can't keep. Every single promise God has ever made, he is going to fulfill. What has happened in the interim period because of Israel's unbelief, that plan was suspended and the church was grafted into God's plan. It's called the age of grace. But the day is coming when, again, the church is going to be raptured and God grafts Israel back into his plan. This is all part of the Bible when it comes to Bible eschatology. So to answer the question, uh, there is a spiritual kingdom where uh, today that is part of every true believer is part of that spiritual kingdom. There is going to be a literal kingdom, a thousand-year rule of Christ. Uh, But to use the word figuratively there, um, in that particular passage, it is clearly not a figurative uh, expression. It is really, um, if, if if you follow the verses and then follow it after, our Lord gives a sample of what the kingdom would be like and his power and his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Pastor, we have Codrington calling from from Antigua. Codrington, give us a call back, and we will put you on the air. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 817. Hard to believe that we are already halfway through a 45-minute, a 90-minute program, but we still have 45 minutes, so that means there is plenty of time for you to call, plenty of time for you to send in your questions. But don't wait till the last minute. Go ahead and send us a WhatsApp or text 1-268-782-1454. Codrington, thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. My question is this, um, a person I heard from Lighthouse the other day, I heard he say that um, he gave God praise first and then he gave his wife um, praise after. So I just wondering if you can comment on that for me, because I think he should say that he's give God the praise and then his um, church members, but he uses the term his wife. Uh, I I can't I wasn't there and I don't know the scenario you're talking about so Codrington I, I really I, I'm not even privy to what you're talking about this must be a program that you probably heard on the radio station and depending on the program and the context in which the person made that statement so I really can't give you an evaluative evaluative um, c- conclusion on what he should have said or what not said because I wasn't there to know the context in which he was said but it could have been a slip of the tongue as well you know you you, you praise but he I'm sure that the 
person who was on the radio program here, I'm sure that he didn't want to take away from God's praise and God's glory. He might have made a statement in the context of what he's dealing with, uh, thanking his wife or praising his wife for something she had done, whatever it is. But I really don't can't respond to you because I really wasn't there. I didn't know what uh, particular person you're talking about. Okay, well, um, I'm, I'm just referring to um, he was preaching. Uh-huh. He really have a, a, a he was preaching. Uh-huh. And he said that I give God praise and I give God praise and I, then I give my wife the praise after. Yeah. Well, he, and I don't think he's thinking of praise on the same level. I mean, is that you commend your wife and thank your wife for something. So he might have used the same word, but I don't think with the same kind of emphasis. I mean, praising God and praising another person is something completely different. I can praise God and I can praise my son. And when I praise my son, I could commend him. But the, the, the using the word, um, it can be interpreted as you're putting on the same equation. But generally speaking, Depending on who you're referring to, you're not using that word in the same context. So it could be that you know he didn't use wise language, and probably wasn't aware that people would take that um, uh, in, a, in that an offensive way. But I'm fairly sure that he would have meant that he praised God, but he commended his wife. I think that's what he he meant. Okay. Okay, sir. Thank you so much for calling, brother. Thank you for calling, Codrington, and thank you for listening. Keep your radio dial tuned to 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. We have many questions that have come in tonight, so if you send in your question and we don't get to it tonight, we will, Lord willing, assuming the rapture doesn't happen before next (laughs) week, we will answer your question at next week's episode. Pastor, anything else you want to mention in relation to the kingdom of God question? No, I just think, I hope the person understands what I'm saying, uh, and I'm not trying to in any way demean their interpretation, but I do think it's important to stress because a lot of the churches today, including the Catholic Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, even the Reformed Church, a lot of them have no place for the millennial kingdom. They don't think it's going to be a literal kingdom. They have no place for Israel. I think that's the greatest um, error in trying to understand Bible prophecy and and what is called eschatology. Uh, And I think the way to understand that is to go back to Romans 9, 10, and 11 to see where Israel fits into God's plan. Uh, So I, I, I just want to say that because there is a literal kingdom coming. And it's going to be for a thousand years, and Christ is going to sit on the throne of David, and he's going to rule from the throne of David for a thousand years. And the believers who will share in the first resurrection will share in that kingdom, as was pointed out in Revelation chapter 20. I just, But at the same time, there is a kingdom that God is building here on planet Earth now, and that is through his church, his true church. And when I say his true church, I'm not talking the Baptist only or the Lutheran only. I'm talking about those who are truly born again within the family of God. They constitute the kingdom. And uh, within every denomination I can think of, Christian denomination, uh, there's no question in my mind that there are people who are saved, uh, but they are the kingdom within. That's the spiritual kingdom that he's building. Our next question comes from Dominica. I'm not sure if this question has been asked before on That's Truth, but in relation to Joyce Meyer, she preached a sermon in support of tattoos. 
She even got two herself, and her husband got one. She said it was to honor God. She gave a Bible scripture from Isaiah 49 and verse 16. Question, did she take that scripture out of context? And to set the stage in the context, let me read it. Let me pull up here Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 16. A lot of chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah 49 and verse 16 it's, it's says... 30, 39, is it not? Uh, I think it's 49. 49, okay. Behold, I have graven thee upon the psalms of my hand. Thy walls are continually before me. Yeah. Well, again, um, I would like to say that um, God doesn't have any hands, like human hands. This is just a figurative expression that is, is used to show his in, the endearment of Israel to himself. Just like a person would, um, you know, he put the, put the name in the hand and endear it, uh, you know, maybe pull it to his chest. So the idea that God literally uh, engraved them in his hand is, is, is just a, what you call a anthropomorphism, which is using human language um uh, to explain a divine act quite frankly so it, this is not something that is literal god doesn't have a literal physical hand that you got that got him in his palm so it's the abuse of scripture that is there but let me talk a little bit about, about tattoos sorry we have another call a question pastor i believe it's codrington again thank you for calling again codrington thank go ahead with your question quickly please um, this my apologies. Um, God created the world, right? God created the world, and everything he was he made in it was so beautiful. Satan was inside the world when he created the world. When you answer me, I will uh, answer another question. After another question. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear that f- Satan fell uh, before man was made. No question about that. Uh, Satan fell in heaven. He took one third of the angels with him, and uh, it is 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 his um, anger, provocation, as you might well call it, his his his, uh, his spite, his ill will, his malice towards God that he decided to ruin uh, God's creation. So uh, sin didn't start with man. Sin started actually in heaven with Satan and his rebellion, but that was transferred to earth when man joined in Satan's rebellion by disobeying God and siding with the enemy. That's when sin began in humankind. Okay. Um, you know, God is full of people now, and you know what kind of a uh, man, uh, what kind of being Satan be? And he's full of people. Why did God create man to fight, to test the devil, and God know himself that man going to fail, and man didn't know that they going to fail, a woman going to fail? Well, again, you're asking a philosophical question that there's no answer in the Bible about that. All I can say to you is that uh, clearly that this whole plan was to somehow uh, incorporate man into into God's plan and elevate man to a level beyond just the human level. Uh, I think this is what it's all about, to, to bring man to a God-like status. Not that he becomes God because there's only one God, one true God. But there's no question that the whole design of creation was to elevate man to a level beyond the mere physical so that man becomes a being like God, but he's not equal to God. I think that's what redemption is all about. The other thing is this, you know, um, God is, uh, one of the things about God is that God is creative. 
And um, he created man to glorify himself. He didn't create man to go to hell. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that man will be cast into hell, for the, which was created for the devil and his angels. It was never created for man. But man joined in the rebellion. Now, I've said this on the program, and I don't have a theological, uh, dogmatic basis for saying it, but I do believe that somehow man is, is involved in how God is going to solve this whole problem with the um, this cosmic satanic being and his hordes. I, I believe that somehow God in dealing with Satan has to be seen to be just before those other beings that he's created. Not a spiteful, vengeful God, but a just God. And I do believe man is somehow involved in that because the moment that he left that domain and came down to planet Earth to wreck God's creation, clearly he has malice and ill will towards God. So God is now just in dealing with Satan. And I do believe that somehow man is wrapped up. I, I can't uh, explain it in a way that probably that um, I'm satisfied with it myself. But it makes sense to me that somehow man is part of the process of God justly dealing with the satanic problem in a way that he is seen to be righteous and holy and not spiteful and vengeful. And I think that's where man comes in in the whole process of redemption. It's about man glorifying God, but I think also it's about man uh, as a, a means of God uh, dealing with this matter in a very just and righteous way where he's perceived as a holy God. I would say one thing, and if you don't have to listen, listen to I do believe that, you know, there, there are a lot of areas that we don't know about. Let's be very honest with you. Uh, we just got to trust God, and we know that the Bible is true, because uh, number one is far in advance of, of, of the science of, of its time. No question about that. They talk about the circle of the earth, so many different things that is scientifically advanced. Not only that, but the fulfilled prophecy. There's no question about fulfilled prophecy. There's no way that a prophecy could be made a thousand years ago, uh, before, and then it comes precisely to pass. And there are hundreds of prophecies that came centuries after they were made. So we know, and not only that, we know the transforming power of the word. Uh, it transforms society, it transforms individuals. So the, 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 there's no question about uh, it. But again, there are a lot of issues, a lot of questions that we just don't have answers to. And the Bible says that God has revealed things to us, but there are things, secrets that he has not revealed to us. And I think that's where we, eternity comes in, because all of us have questions about why did this happen, Lord? Why did I, you know, I thought this was against me. A lot of those issues are going to be resolved, and I think that's where eternity uh, becomes something exciting and not just something boring, because a lot of our questions, I think, is going to be answered then. Carterton, thank you very much for your call and your questions. Appreciate your interaction. The phone line is now open and available. If you have a question, you can call and ask it. 1-268-462-7420. That'll put you live on the air. If you would rather not speak live on the air, that's not a problem. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your question in the comment section, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.30. Pastor, back to our question about tattoos. Yeah, I, I think that it's a misapplication of that particular verse with reference to herself. In other words, uh, there's no 
um, justification for her saying, well, you know, if God did this figuratively to show his endearment of, of Israel, then Israel is very special. Therefore, I must now do it as well. So I just, I just think there's no connection between what is done in uh, Isaiah 57, 59, 49, and verse 16. I would like to say a few things about the uh, tattoo, though. I think that the tattoo is a, a fad that is, 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 is growing uh, as a matter of fact, it has now become a career. There are people who devote their entire life to be a tattoo artist, etc., etc. And like any fad, the pressure has now come to the door of the church, trying to force its way into the church. Uh, and I think the church needs to be aware that this is a fad that eventually going to fade away like every other fad, whether it be bell bottoms, whether it be straight bottoms, whether it be big bottoms, whether it be, whatever it is, it's a fad that is, is, is going to fade. And the church must be very careful of falling in line uh, with the fad. Um, so a lot of believers are asking, you know, is it right then to have uh, tattoos? And this is where Joss Meyer, because of her influence, uh, comes in now, and she seems to be endorsing it. And this would probably give people the green light to go ahead. But we need to be careful and watchful about, about this one. Now, there is a biblical reference that um, if it does not completely parallel the tattoo movement, uh, there is a similarity between the two. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 28. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. I am the Lord. Yeah. Now that's the closest biblical reference that uh, seems to parallel the modern movement of, of, of tattoos. But let me just say this. Tattoo is a word that came in in the late 17th century before the King James Version was written. So there's no word for tattoo uh, except after the after the King James Version was written. So uh, that's the problem. If probably it had occurred before, maybe they would have used that word in the King James. But the, the, but, but the word um, writing that you find there uh, refers to inscribing or engraving a symbol or word. And it's only here used once in the Bible, and it is whether or not it's the modern equivalent of the tattoo, uh, it is hard to draw that equivalency, but it is something that seems similar, uh, marking the body, etc., etc. Uh, let me give you a background to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. The period in Leviticus chapter um, 19, verse 28, uh, that is something that happened very long after uh, Israel was given instructions. For example, archaeology have discovered that in uh, Egypt, uh, tattoos were used, but they were not used by men. In other words, they were restricted to women, and women would use tattoos on their breasts, on their thighs, on their abdomen, because it was related to fertility. Hmm. And they believe that these tattoos somehow gave them good luck charm when it came to the birthing process. Men would not use it, but Egyptian women would use it. The Canaanites um, also had a different form of that, more of a scarification type of thing, where it would be not just 
writing, but branding and slashing and gashing. We have an example of that in, in First Kings when the uh, you remember the prophets of Baal when right. they were cutting each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so it is very likely that our Lord is warning the Israelites because remember they were in Egypt for how long? Four hundred and twenty years. The Book of Leviticus uh, is written in the fifteenth century, so that is almost. Um, uh, that's almost 1,500 years from creation, to be honest with you. So it's a long period before then they're given this kind of instruction. But it seems to be that it has to be related either to the Canaanites or what was happening in Egypt. And God has said, I don't want you to be doing what the heathen is doing. This is not something that you should be doing as a, as, as a as belonging to me. So I personally find tattoos very distasteful. Um... I think it's a worldly fad. And if it's a worldly fad, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 comes into play. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. And there's no question that this is not a spiritual fad. It's not a church fad. This is a worldly fad that is now beginning to knock at the church door and uh, come in, especially to young people uh, who have no spiritual background, who have no spiritual depth, and therefore they're, they're the people that follow the fad. I think it's also associated with a worldly trend. And John says, love not the world, nor the things in the world. So these are biblical principles. I think also it devalues or violates the creation, the creator's purpose of the body. The body was never designed to be a palette yeah. uh, that you, 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 you draw in. If, if that was the intention, God would have done that. So I don't think it is by, uh, by accident that man was made the widow. Now we're trying to scar and mark up everything. That, In other words, it is a systematic destruction of the image of God in my in my value. And I think that, I don't think that people understand the depth of what is happening, right? And then the other thing is that because in Leviticus 19 it is associated with paganism, and God said, I don't want you to be marking your body and scarring your body, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is something that Christians cannot just ignore and uh, and so on. And the other thing I think is the uh, part of the culture, the modern culture obsession with the outward, the superficial, the artificial uh, beauty, uh, where there are, it's not the inward beauty of the heart that they're concerned about, it's the outward beauty, and therefore they're marking up themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that again should warn believers that this is not something that we should be engaged in. And, and, and the other thing is this, that because there is doubt about whether believers should do it, and many believers, the Bible says, what is not of faith is sin. If we can't do it with a clear conscience, etc., we should stay away from it. And I think that is one of the cautionary principles that are uh, applicable in dealing with, with tattoos. Um, the other thing, Nathan, I see no salvific purpose in it. As a matter of fact, I think it's a deterrent, and it is damaging to the gospel. I remember many years ago, I've been in St. Lucia now 22 years, Antigua 20 years, but I was in St. Lucia for 10 years. And I remember when they brought down a team, came down for a missions team, came down to do ministry in our church. And quite frankly, they came down with earrings in the eyebrow, earrings in the belly button, earrings. I mean, I had a meeting with them at the first time. I said, listen, if you came down here to work with us and minister with us, you will have absolutely no effect upon these Caribbean people because they know one thing. That's not for Christians. So I had to have them remove the earrings and everything. I said, if you're going to interesting, you know, you really want to minister. And uh, 
they thought it was the, they were shocked that I told them that because that they were coming from New York. So you can imagine what was going on there. But now they come into a different culture. And because anything go, ha, goes in New York, they figured we could come to the Caribbean. I said, no, no, you can't minister in the Caribbean with that, that kind of a way. And I think that this kind of, um, if a guy was coming down from the States to work in our church and help uh, DVBS, whatever, he comes down with all of these tattoos on his hand. And says, the first thing I tell him, you've got to cover them up because it's sending the wrong message and people are not seeing him as a serious Christian. It does affect your testimony. And I think that in itself uh, is something you should be concerned about. And it really has no positive Christian warrant for it. I can't see any reason why anybody uh, would want to do that. I just can't see any Christian reason for it at all. It doesn't help the church. It doesn't help your testimony. It's not a good witness, etc., etc. And how does it enhance your uh, personality or enhance your Christian um, testimony? It doesn't. It diminishes it. And I think that um, I would discourage it just like it was discouraged in the Old Testament. But I see this as uh, another one of those things that the devil has brought to create petty fighting among believers so as to keep the church in disunity. It's one fad, you fight over this fad, we get over it. Another fad, we fight over this fad. So the church is always kept in a state of tension because the enemy is trying to infiltrate the church. And, uh, and and we don't see what is being done behind the scenes. And I think this is one of the other means that the enemy has created so that churches and people are now fighting each other over these issues, splitting the church, dividing the church. He's a genius at knowing how to separate us. Uh, and one last thing, Nathan. You and I would not go to a church building and vandalize it by putting all kinds of spraying things. Why would we vandalize the holy temple of God, which is the body? I mean, when you draw that parallel, I wouldn't think of going there with a spray can and spraying whatever. That's a church building. But what about my body is a temple? Wouldn't you, couldn't someone use that same rationale, though, for like, let's say your wife, uh, if she has earrings, you wouldn't go to the church and drill a big hole in the window. So why are you drilling a hole in your ear for an earring? I suppose somebody would go to the extreme with that. Mm-hmm. But clearly, when you look in the scriptures, even from going back from the Old Testament, um, even in um, the, the Jews, when they were giving the offering to the build the tabernacle, the men had earrings, if you know that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is not something that, um, I'm not adv- advocating that <laughs> yeah. the other way, but I think it is possible that if you're looking for an excuse, uh, clearly you can try to connect that. But I don't think it's the same level. For example, I think generally speaking, nobody is offended by earrings uh, today, generally speaking, because I guess the culture has gotten accustomed to it. Well, again, it might take some time before something changes. It's like it's like uh, what happens with us, take dressing. What has happened is that dressing used to be long down to your ankles. Then it was raised a little bit. And you'd be surprised that what people thought was immodest. We said, but man alive. But then it kept raising and raising and raising and raising because society got adjusted to it. I think that Christians need to be very careful and not take on something that just happened. And uh, maybe let it work through the culture until it, it becomes less offensive. But if there's not a biblical warrant for it, uh, I, for example, I can't say that, for example, that the Bible says you shouldn't do tattoos. I can only give you my rationale behind it and give you biblical principles, right? So that's what we've got to do when it comes to issues that there's no explicit Bible statement that says you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. 
uh, we, we look at biblical principles, apply that. The other thing I would say, um, Nathan, that this uh, forbids you for rendering a useful purpose to your fellow citizens. For example, people who have tattoos normally can't give blood, right? Uh, that is a, a problem because it's, it's skin, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know all the details about that, to be honest with you. That's another factor that needs to be concerned. And then if you ever want to remove it, uh, it's, I understand they can do it, but I don't think it can work totally, right? Think about that, but just a, a matter. It's like you saying, I love Debbie, and you put a tad at that, and then you don't marry Bet, 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 Betty, you marry Susie, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but I think it's something that it's a fad. I don't think it's a good fad, to be honest with you. And I think, uh, why would Christians get wrapped up with this whole thing? And we, why, why can't we see what the enemy is trying to do? Divide the church by bringing issue after issue. And uh, because it's not a clear white and, and black matter that the Bible says is wrong, he uses these means of, of trying to infiltrate the church and create confusion. The verse you referenced in Leviticus 19.28, one verse ahead of it, and I'm asking this because I've been asked it myself and I didn't really have an answer. Leviticus 19.27 says, Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. So the question that was posed to me was, why don't you follow verse 27, but yet you're saying that verse 28 is something we should apply? Well, in the case of the, I understand with the beard, uh, again, this is part of the uh, uh, pagan ritual related to their gods. Now, I could probably deal with that another time, and because I can't remember the whole the whole details of why they, they would do that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that's not seen in the same perspective. Uh, I mean, men have been... As a matter of fact, men have been using beard for a long time, shaving the beard, whatever it is. Uh, I don't think that is the same form of offense. Uh, and again, this is something that you can change. You can't change a tattoo. True. Right? It's something more permanent, et cetera, et cetera. But what I would like to say, Nathan, is that we church got to get away from every worldly fad yeah. that becomes popular. We run after it, right? Uh, I can't understand why we would do that, right? And uh, and a lot of this is affecting our witness and our testimony because the world sees us like themselves. There's no differentiation between the two. We're not seen as separate and distinct any longer. We're trying to, as it were, um, uh, to wear all the barriers in order to become relevant, in order to, to, to reach the loss. But the loss is not impressed by our similarities, they're impressed by the disparities that we have, how different we are, and that's what really draws people to the gospel. Not when we act like them, behave like them, and have the same values they have, and dress like them, and and, and talk like them. Thank you for listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Our next question comes from Trinidad and Tobago. Good night. I have a question about the creation and how the earth was populated. If Adam and Eve were the only humans, then others, other than incest, how was the world populated? Well, it is very clear that you are right on this matter, because there were only two human beings, all the human stock, all the races came through Adam and Eve. So we, we have one common federal head ancestor. So it's very obvious as they develop. Cain would have either married his sister or his aunt. Okay? But he's married one of those. So it's very clear that this was allowed by God. But again, remember that when man was you mean made, his there was mother, no, his, mo- his sister or his niece? Because his aunt, he wouldn't have an aunt, right? Well, if you got, um, if you got Adam had um, daughters, 
right. and you have that. Yeah, yeah, in Indonesia. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But the, the, the thing, <coughs> uh, when there was no sin, and man was, there would be, the God, uh, there was no sin, there was no problem of genetic uh, mutation and uh, uh, problems of that nature, genetic nature. So therefore, that was tolerated, tolerated and tolerated. But then when we come to the book of Leviticus, after 1,500 years of sin in the world, God now puts restrictions on that uh, again. And, and uh, every geneticist will tell you it's, it's wrong to intermarry because you carry over um, the genes, etc., and it could create a lot of medical problems and physical problems. So the, the deterioration of the human nature, the deterioration of sin, that led to the point where the, the genes were affected. And to prevent this kind of... Uh, the other thing is this. I think it's a blessing that God eventually uh, put controls on who you could marry within the family. Think of the mess that we're in today. Mm. One out of every four girls have been sexually abused either by a brother, an uh, uncle, a daddy. One of every six boys have been sexually abused by one of the people within the family. See, That shows you quite frankly that God understood that as man's sin became more serious and man became more depraved, there had to be some line of demarcation to, to bring man out of this moral confusion. Imagine if that was not a restriction of a, uh, a boy and a sister living together for so long. Imagine yeah. what can happen in that kind of a situation. So God, in his wisdom, uh, allowed it for the first 1,500 years until it came to the point where a man's sinful nature became so bad and they, that he put a restriction. So, And the other thing, Nathan, is that uh, it is also linked with redemption. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because Adam is a federal head and everybody came through Adam, Christ is a new federal head. Right. That's the biblical presentation of the gospel, part of the, the great mystery of how God worked this thing out. Because all of us were in the first Adam, God gives us potential that we can be in Christ because he becomes a new federal head. So that makes it possible. So there is some kind of a correlation between God's plan for creation and God's plan for redemption and having two federal heads. So there's something more to it than just the physical creation and so on. But uh, there was incest allowed, but then God restricted it in Leviticus after 1,500 years. So it is wrong. And by the way, who sets the rules? God sets the rules. So if God said it is wrong because of the deterioration of the sinful nature and not because of the genetic effects it's going to have, uh, it is wisdom to see that God has actually put this in place. And every doctor, every geneticist would tell you that if you have too much intermarry within a family line, the, the stock uh, deteriorates. It's, 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 a, it's a, a, a thing, yeah. So I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit here. We're, I guess, taking the step out of the clear cut, what's sure. in Scripture. But... In your lifetime, and even within my lifetime, things that we never would have imagined have become normalized in the media, have become normalized in parts of society, whether that be homosexuality or whatever the case may be. And I know you've made a statement along the lines of that at some point it's going to lead down a path of something like bestiality becoming normalized. Do you envision that at some point man will be so blinded that things like incest will become normalized even though there is scientific evidence at this point 
I say at this point because man seems to be selective in what he wants to believe as to whether or not to do this? Yeah, look, anytime you go away from the biblical principles and guidelines and uh, God's restrictions, you open a box that you can't close. I don't think we can close this box. I think it's going to get worse and worse. I think pedophilia is going to be permitted. Uh, do you know, uh, I don't know if you noticed, they're now making robotic women that you don't need to have a, uh, a male partner or a female partner. Uh, this is where we're headed, Nathan. Uh, and and, and the, the one area that they don't want you to touch is sex. Yeah. This is the one area. You touch everything else but sex. And that is now... Um, I- imagine, Nathan, that you can... Um, a child can have a sex... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Change. Transgender. Yeah, change. And sometimes the parent don't even have to know that. No. Yeah. Who who are the adults in this whole thing, right? I mean, we don't we, we don't even want to give a child a knife to play with. We feel that it's dangerous. But then how can we permit those kind of things to happen? Yeah. There is an evil in this world, and I have no doubt that it is centralized with a group of people who have decided uh, that this is the way they want the world to go, and they are using every mechanism and form of government to get that done. There is a conspiracy, in my judgment, to bring down the complete collapse of morality. And it, I just read, uh, uh, um, doing a, a course on um, uh, parental coaching, co- coaching fa- um, parents. And the guy mentioned the research that was done uh, to study about men. And they skewed the research to make men irrelevant. And they wrote an article, I forgot, uh, I think it was the irrelevant men in time after the thing was done. When they investigated the research, they discovered that it was all false. It was bias. Mm-hmm. And the reason they were doing that is to do where with the, the, the traditional family that you don't need a male in the house any longer. It was all preplanned and, and researched to skew the information so that man, became, the male, the, the father became irrelevant because they're trying to destroy the nuclear family and they wanted a family where you can have a family without a man and that way they have the... But I am surprised that people can so willfully... And because they are researchers who got doctors to the name, it is somehow believed that what the conclusions they reach are infallible, when in actual fact, they have a different agenda, they operate from different presuppositions, and the whole thing is to destroy the Christian, the, the, uh, the nuclear family. Anything else you want to mention on this? Uh, where? No, I just like, I'd okay. like to say that uh, this is where, if I might use another illustration, God has a right to change how he operates. Like there are what you call dispensations, that God dealt with man on a certain way, and then God dealt with man on another way. And this is where, for example, take the, take the Sabbath day. God has a right to tell the church which commandments it should follow. And in all the epistles, nine of those commandments are mandated to the church. One is not where he said, let every man be fully persuaded in his mind. God has a right to, why? Because he's God. Yeah. See? And, and that's why people say, well, because it operated in this way, he has no right to, ch-. but again, the Levitical system, God had a right to institute sacrificial system. But that has changed when Christ has come. There's no need for that. See, So God has a right because he's God to set the agenda and to change the agenda 
in the best interest of humankind. And we got to understand that uh, when, we, when we're dealing with God. I think we've got time for one more question here. This one comes in from Facebook. My question is, should a Christian buy lottery tickets, seeing that the word says, seek, ask, and knock? Thank you for your answer. I'm against the purchase of lottery tickets. Uh, I have uh, done a program with gambling before. Lottery is gambling. Uh, but the way that God has ordained for us to meet our legitimate needs is through hard work. And that is found in Ephesians 4.28, 2 Thessalonians 3.21, and Proverbs 31 with the virtuous woman. So uh, this trying to get rich quick by um, buying a lotto ticket is outside the pale of the norm that God has for the believer. Um, the other thing is that uh, Christians are not only to meet their needs through hard work, but where there are needs outside the family, we're also given that response. We're trying to help those in need. The lotto um, is not designed for us to do that. Uh, and then the Bible is against greed and covetousness. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, and Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 warns against covetousness. It said, be content with such things as you have. And there's no question that the lotto is about greed and covetousness. It's wanting what you don't have and at the expense of others. I think that is what makes it wrong as well. And then the Bible tells us that a person who gets riches through quick and wrong ways creates disaster for the family. That's found in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 20, and verse number 12. And Proverbs 19, 15, 27 said, Wealth gained the wrong way breaks up a family. And then gambling is something that can be addictive. For these reasons, I am against the idea of um, engaging in a lottery. And if I might say this, the lottery is skewed against you winning. Let me give you some stats, Nathan. Take the New, York, New Jersey pick six numbers. It is one in, in 13,983,816. One in that. So you, you're not, you're punching. And then the, the Ohio Mega Millions, it is one in 175 million that you could win. And then the Pennsylvania uh, is one in um, one in four million. It is skewed that if you win, you it's a miracle that you win. To be honest with you, yeah. and the other thing is that the system is built on the necessity of most people losing, and that's why it is so attractive. These people, it's a billion dollar ministry. Uh, uh, they don't lose. Who lose is the poor, and it preys on the poor who spends at least 9% of their income sell, uh, on the under. And there are homes, Nathan, that the husband leaves work with his check, goes into these, these, these trying, to, trying to win, and his family needs are not met. Uh, it preys on the poor. And this is where um, quick money and the government trying to um, get quick money uh, undermines the virtue of a strong work ethic and give people the impression that money comes easy. I think in, in, in itself, it undermines the virtue of hard work and a good work ethic. I'm against it. I remember reading an article a while back that had cited studies that were done where they followed lottery winners. Uh -uh. And, you know, they may have won $50 million or $4.5 million. 
and then followed how much how they finished their life on their deathbed and the vast majority of them were broke yeah. they well, they didn't keep the money they didn't spend it wisely yeah that's like um when i heard people like um uh, Diane Warwick great singer millions of dollars she's broke uh, so many of these superstars, uh, maybe great boxers, great um, athletic athletes, who made millions of dollars, <clears throat> you hear that they're broke, they're broke, they're broke, they're broke, they're broke, they're broke. Um, it, it's terrible, and they, uh, their lives, of course, is normally ruined mm-hmm. by that because they go after girls and women and worldliness, etc., etc. It comes. To, it's like uh, what Paul says in First uh, Timothy chapter six that those that would be rich expose themselves to great danger and much affliction and, and, and much much pain uh, and make shipwreck of their lives <clears throat> in the pursuit of a quick dollar. If you would like to listen to a whole episode on this topic, you can go to the That's Truth podcast. Just Google it, That's Truth podcast. Look for episode number 28, which is entitled Gambling, and that whole 60-minute episode was dedicated to the topic of gambling and the lottery. Thank you for making us part of your Tuesday night routine, and Lord willing, we will join you again next Tuesday evening for another episode of That's Truth. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.